Hello and welcome to Biopod, the official podcast of the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. I'm Severina and I'm excited to introduce a new episode where Rose from Biopod and Caris from AMR Forum Podcast are talking to Dr. Brian Wee about what is antimicrobial resistance, what is the impact it has, and what research Dr. Wee is working on. Hello, and welcome to today's episode on antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, as we will be referring to it. This episode is brought to you today as an exciting collaboration between Biopod and the new Edinburgh AMR Forum podcast. My name is Rose, I'm from Biopod, and I'll be co-hosting today with Karis. Hi, I'm Karis and I'm from the AMR Forum podcast. Today we're joined by our special guest, Dr. Brian Wee, an expert in microbial genomics. Uh, This episode will provide you with an introduction to AMR as well as an insight into the approaches Dr. Wee takes to answer important questions in the AMR field. Brian, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your academic background and, and research. Um, I did an um, undergraduate in zoology in Malaysia, where I grew up, um, and then I went on to do a master's in molecular biology at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, and then I stayed there to do a PhD in microbial genomics uh, with uh, Associate Professor Scott Beetson, and then made the decision to leave the sunny sunny lands of, of Brisbane to um, of Australia to move to Edinburgh. To start up uh, my first postdoc with um, Professor Ross Fitzgerald at the Roslin Institute. So I've been in Edinburgh since then. I've done a couple more postdocs over the last five to uh, seven years. And um, I'm currently a core scientist at the Roslin Institute with uh, Dr. Adrian Mwonge. That's great. Thank you. So just going into a little bit more of the actual, the antimicrobials specifically, when sometimes we talk about antimicrobials and AMR, sometimes antibiotics and ABR or antibiotic resistance. Why is this that um, that we get some sort of a little bit of different terminology? So in general, when people talk about AMR, they refer to all types of microbes. So AMR stands for antimicrobial resistance and um, microbes can include viruses such as SARS-CoV-2, which we're all familiar with by now. Um, yes, very bacteria. much Bacteria, so. yep. We, it also includes bacteria and sometimes uh, also parasitic um, eukaryotes or my, microbial eukaryotes, I think they're called. But this includes uh, parasites such as malaria or trypanosomes. So all of these are microbes, and when they acquire resistance, um, we call them um, we call this antimicrobial resistance as an umbrella term. I see. Okay. So if for the rest of this podcast we refer to AMR, um, then we can we can just continue with that, but just on the understanding that your focus within AMR is is antibiotic resistance, specifically bacteria. Then that's right. So antibiotic resistance this uh, usually refers to resistance that bacteria have um, to antibiotics, um, and these are the drugs that uh, we've used over the last sixty or seventy years to treat infections that bacteria cause. So I suppose most people have heard of antibiotics. Um, but I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about how they work um, and what we use them for. Right. So antibiotics can be any compound or molecule that um, either kills or prevents growth of bacteria. 
And usually antibiotics, as opposed to things like antiseptics, have a very specific mode of action. So they do target a specific part of the bacteria or a pathway in the bacteria that doesn't exist in humans. So when we use antibiotics, most of the time, usually they're not bad for humans, they're just bad for the bacteria. And so what is antimicrobial resistance? How do the bacteria develop a resistance to these antibiotics? Right, so antibiotics, uh, antimicrobial resistance or antibiotic resistance um, is when antibiotics stop working on bacteria. And this happens because of some kind of change in the DNA of the bacteria. And, and why this is why sometimes we call resistance bacteria superbugs, and that's because they've kind of like acquired a, uh, a new superpower and it cannot easily die, just like super <laughs> Superman. So having these bugs that we really struggle to kill, that's given us a, a pretty good idea of, uh, of, on the basic level, why AMR is so important as an issue. Could you give us a little bit more insight into what the implications are of, of having uh, these bugs that we just can't kill? Yeah, so um, before antibiotics were used regularly, a lot more people suffered and died from, from just basic infections. And these could be things like sore throats, um, cuts or wounds, and we will have no way of treating them. So, so when resistance occurs or when AMR happens, it, it, it becomes really hard to treat these infections. And so that, that is quite scary. Yeah, and I would imagine things like transplants and surgery and so on, where we use antibiotics in a preventative uh, measure, would, would also then become a lot harder as well without, uh, without reliably functioning antibiotics too. Yeah, that's right, yep. And I suppose maybe an economic impact as well? Yes, definitely. Yeah, so um, cost to livelihoods, um, people having to stay at home, um, you know, you can't put a cost on human life obviously. But yes, lots of economic um, effects as well. And, and infections in, in agriculture, livestock, pets, even those, you know, those won't be easily controlled. So how much do we understand about, um, about the relationship between AMR in humans and other animals? And are there, is that one of the big unknowns? Are there other things out there that we really don't understand about this situation? Yes, so what, what some of the work that I do um, is to address how much of resistance that happens in humans actually comes from animals or the other way around. So we don't actually know the rate that this happens. So in theory, resistance bacteria in animals could infect humans and um, bacteria found in humans could spill over to animals or the environment. So we, we know that this can happen in theory. So bacteria are quite versatile but we don't actually know the rate at which this happens. So we don't actually know where to control, to, to apply control measures for these, um, to, to prevent these effects. Yes. I see. So are we, are we looking more at human clinicians or are we looking more at vets and farmers in terms of who we want to prioritize for, for antimicrobial stewardship then in that sense? Yeah, so that's that's one approach to, to c c control the, um, the, the people or the animals using it, but also kind of the interface, which is the sort of, where is the interface happening? Where is this? Where does AMR flow from one population to another? So is this through wastewater, which is some some which is work that we do in um, in the University of Edinburgh um, to understand whether there's specific types of bacteria that are more likely to to move between these populations through wastewater, for example. So yeah, so these are some of the questions that we're trying to address. 
I see. So quite, it's very much what we term a one health problem then. It's very much includes humans, non-human animals and the environment very much then. That's um, right. We're all in the same boat. I see. Great. Um, so in terms of actually sort of antimicrobial stewardship and things that we can use as alternatives, are there, are there many alternatives to antibiotics that we can use to try and sort of moderate our antibiotic use? Yeah, so alternatives to antibiotics do exist. And um, at the University of Edinburgh, there's a lot of research looking into this as well. So there are colleagues at the, um, the Royal Infirmary that are working on trying to help the immune system to fight infections rather than having to rely solely on antibiotics. So that's one way. Um, colleagues at the Rosslyn Institute have also been looking at using a natural enemy of bacteria called bacteriophage to, to, to kill and target um, resistant bacteria. So these are some of the two, some of the methods that are being used uh, as an alter alternative to antibiotics. How do vaccines come into that? I suppose they're preventative rather than... Yes, so if you could... Yeah, if you could avoid getting an infection through vaccines, I think then you can avoid using antibiotics in, in completely, well, not completely, but you know, in that particular scenario. And I'd imagine um, that vaccines against viral infections are also helpful just because sometimes you get secondary bacterial infections or sometimes inappropriate use of antibiotics against uh, viral infections. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sometimes when you don't know what's um, causing the infection or you don't know, you're, you're, not, you're not willing to risk, like, as you said, secondary infections, um, you know, you, you do tend to be a bit more cautious and give, give a patient um, more antibiotics than they actually need. So what can we do as individuals and as a society to help the AMR problem? So I think we shouldn't take antibiotics for granted and be more careful about how we use them. Um, and if more of us have more awareness of how precious antibiotics are, hopefully that catches on and people will be less likely or more reluctant to kind of reach out for antibiotics um, whenever they have a, a cough or a, a cold um, and instead saving these medicines, you know, for, for when, when they're, really, they're really needed. So always follow the instructions uh, on your, um, from your pharmacist or your doctor. And I guess spreading the word, I mean, as scientists, we should be, we should be spreading this whole ideal, right? That we need to limit our antibiotic use and tell people the problems of it, people who don't necessarily understand. Yeah, and that actually leads us to an interesting question because there's always this um, question of access versus excess. Um, and you know, there are lots of people around the world who don't have access to any antibiotics. So that's a balance that we need to strike, I guess, to you know, make sure that antibiotics are being used by the people who need them. And, and used less by the people who don't need them. Yeah, so very, very complex problem on the policy side of things, as well as the, as well as the sort of more pure science side of it. Yeah, and, behavioral, yeah, behavioral um, strategies to, to, to justify yeah. to people why they should, you know, do certain things when it comes to, to their health. So earlier you mentioned a little bit about how your research was focusing on the interface between EMR in humans and in non-human animals and also the environment. So um, could you give us a little bit more, more detail on how you approach researching AMR? So um, a lot of the work we do with AMR is to use a technique called whole genome sequencing to look at the DNA of bacteria to closely examine how, how they 
are distributed between humans, animals, and the environment. So whole genome sequencing allows us to, to closely, to tell very closely related bacteria apart and to determine how they got, how they may have moved from a human to an animal or the other way around. And can you tell from the whole genome sequencing if, if bacteria are going to be resistant to antibiotics? Or do you have yes. to culture them for that? That's a very good question. So it's been shown that comparing the DNA or the genome sequence to the resistance profile or what we call the phenotype um, is, is actually highly concordant. So it's not perfect, but 95% of the time, having a signal in the DNA does concur with the resistance phenotype. And this is because we can tell, look for the presence of genes that confer AMRs um, and also mutations in the DNA that confer AMRs. So by looking for all of these things, we can uh, tell, we can predict with great certainty whether a bacteria is resistant or not. I see. So then you can, uh, if you can do whole genome sequencing on, on a whole sample, as you were mentioning with wastewater, then you don't need to be able to culture every single uh, microbe in there, you can uh, you can work out what they're likely to be resistant to just from an original sample then? Yes, uh, with sequencing um, and with how, how much sequencing you can do these days, you, you can pick out a lot of what's in the wastewater. Not everything, which is a, a critical point. So there is a sensitivity issue here uh, with, with, with metagenomic sequencing, as what we've described, um, but we can detect quite a lot of it. I see. And so, and how, how are you using the genomics to, uh, to work out sort of where the AMR is coming from and where it's going then? So we look at the DNA of, bac of bacteria at, at a few different levels. So first of all, we look at the bacteria itself. Um, so whether bacteria found in humans versus animals are similar, but we also look at the AMR gene. So whether or not the genes found between humans and animals are similar. So on those two levels, things don't always agree. Um, bacteria may be similar, but they may have very different resistance genes. And this is because bacteria are involved. Uh, bacteria can, um, can do something called horizontal gene transfer, which uh, means they can exchange genes. So just because two, two strains of bacteria are related doesn't mean that they both are resistant or are resistant in the same way. So Brian, maybe you could tell us a bit about your Nairobi study and how you used genomics to look at AMR in that. Oh, thank you. Thanks for asking about the study. So the study was um, uh, published in Nature Microbiology last year, and it was a very big study that took about 10 years and lots of collaborators to, uh, to put together. So this study took place in Nairobi in Kenya, which is, is a city of about 4 million um, people at the moment. Um, and what we did was to look at bacteria from humans and animals across the city of Nairobi. And we also knew whether these humans were from the same households or from different households. So we had a nice experimental design um, of this bacteria, which, which was E. coli, Escherichia coli, um, from across Nairobi. So we sequenced 1,000, over 1,000 genomes of, of E. coli, and we tried to figure out patterns in, in, in how the bacteria were related, how the resistance genes were related across all of these samples. And what did you find? We found in the 1,000 sequences that we, we, we generated from that study, 
we found nine cases where, or nine pairs of genomes where a human had a very similar E. coli to um, a livestock, um, to an animal. And this, we were trying to figure out whether nine was a lot given that we had sampled a thousand. So that was a, so that was something we, 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 we looked at in detail. Um, so in summary, nine is not that much to really say anything about the patterns of transmission, but we did find that um, all of the people involved in these nine events were had a history of handling animals. So this might have been a, a, a risk factor, um, although we couldn't do, you know, um, we didn't have the power to do a proper analysis on, on this many um, number um, samples. But one interesting thing that we found was that um, in chickens, the resistance gene profile were very similar, whether these chickens were from the same household or from different households. And this, we, we suspect that this is due to very similar antibiotic use across chickens in, in Nairobi, leading to very similar resistance genes being selected for in chickens. How can you go about um, investigating this further to kind of confirm these hypotheses? So I think the study that we did, even though it was a very big study and it took, um, in order to generate these thousand samples, um, 10,000 samples were collected, were actually collected in the field. So this is a very oh. big study, but we've only just scratched the surface of, of what is happening in the bacterial world. So following on from this, it would be great if we had we could do even more sequencing or more sampling um, across the same, same area and to figure out whether this is something that is changing over time or if it um, is, because we've only got a snapshot of the study at the moment. What we've done is just taken a snapshot of what it looked like in 2015 when the study was done. I mean, logistically, how difficult is it? I mean, how many people are involved in collecting these samples and doing the sequencing and I was um I guess lucky enough not to be involved in the first part of the analysis so I inherited the um the, a lot of the data from a previous colleague and she was instrumental um and this is Melissa Ward but um she was instrumental in designing this study from the ground up so she was out there um, briefing all the microbiologists people collecting um, samples veterinarians um survey takers who were going around households asking questions she was instrumental in designing study so i don't know actually how many people were involved but it was quite a big task and uh, melissa did this as part of her, her, her fellowship project and why did you select nairobi to start yeah and nairobi has a very good um team based in nairobi uh, at the institute of livestock research international livestock research institute um, or ILRI, and they had a team there that supported um, with the logistics and also the data analysis there. So we had um, the, the lead author in the study is Dishon Muloy, who is um, who's now in ILRI, but was a PhD student at the School of Biological Sciences in Edinburgh. I see, and, and I understand there's a lot of urban livestock keeping um, in Nairobi. If people um, perhaps in the UK wouldn't necessarily imagine a city to be a place that you would do a livestock um, and human study. So that's uh, correct. Yes. Those quarters. Yes. Thank you for pointing out, Karis. Actually, I've, I've worked in this project for so long that I've also assumed that that happens everywhere. So livestock, urban livestock keeping, for those who are not aware, is the practice of um, keeping livestock in households in the city. So this can be a small, um, 
head of, of goats, for example, two or three goats, a few chickens maybe, or they can actually be large scale. So if you have a larger compound, you could actually have a herd of, of cows, for example. So yes, it is practiced widely in Nairobi um, by about 60% of the population, I believe. And it's practiced across all, all levels of society. So from, um, from the lowest to the highest income, income levels. I see. So if you were going to get a lot of transfer of, of antimicrobial, um, any resistant bacteria and so on, you would expect to get it there then with lots and lots of people across the socioeconomic spectrum. Yes. So, um, yes, and that was one of the, the hypotheses of the study. So that's what they set out to look for. They thought that in this great interaction of, of humans and animals, there should be a lot more resistance and bacteria um, moving about. But because we only found nine out of the 1,000 um, samples that we collected, um, it's really hard to say if it's actually happening more than it, than it would say in people and their cats at home, for example, or, you know, um, yeah, it's, it's quite, it's actually not as, as much as we thought it would be. I see. So uh, lots of lots of interesting questions to um, to investigate further there. So uh, hopefully with um, sequencing some more of those samples, it'll give us a bit more information on that. Um, and is, yeah, is that yeah. your your next step or are you planning to branch out into into other areas? So one of the limitations that we had from this approach was that we only could see, um, isolate one bacteria per human or animal host. And this was a limitation of how, how the experimental design was, was um, how, the, how it was designed. So what we plan to do is to actually perform metagenomics, which is trying to avoid the culturing step. So being having to select one, just one strain from you know, a, a big soup of bacteria in, in a human or a, an animal, and to be able to just look at what is in there without any of this um, enrichment. So the next so step looking is at all of the bacteria that are in there and not just sort of having one strain. So you get a huge amount of genetic information there then. Yeah, that's right. So metagenomics will allow you to look at all the bacteria that's in there, all the AMR genes that's in um, that's present in any animal or human. So what do you anticipate in the future of AMR research generally? Uh, where is this field going from your point of view? Um, so I think the technology is improving rapidly every day, and um, we're now able to sequence um, longer DNA sequences, um, which will give us more information about the relationship between resistance genes and the bacteria. Uh, but it also means that we can use less starting material, so we don't actually need to to grow or, or you know, um, to culture the bacteria before we can analyze it. So this allows us to actually perform sampling from a sick patient, for example, to find out what they have um, within a matter of hours at the moment. I think that's the current turnaround time, but yeah, and in the future it might go down to, a, you know, hopefully minutes and you'll be able to tell exactly what's in your, in your sample, what resistance gene it carries and, and what is carrying it. Right, so very quick, um, targeted patient-side antibiotic choice then. Yeah, um, seaside, if you wanted to know what's in the, in the, in the water. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of surfers out there who would be happy to, or possibly unhappy to know um, what exactly is in there. <laughs> um, but no, very useful for environmental monitoring. Um, 
Yeah. And um, so, uh, so the very rapid sequencing is that something that that you'd like to focus on, or? Um, yeah, so that's something that we're definitely um, focused on. And Edinburgh has got a very good community um, around this um, technology. So one of the one of the companies that makes this technology is called Oxford Nanopore, and um, and there's a very a really good community in Edinburgh that that works together to share ideas about what's the best way of using this um, platform. I see. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Brian. That's been really, really interesting to chat with you. And thank you to Rose for this crossover episode with, uh, with the AMR Forum podcast and Biopod. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode. Hope you enjoyed the episode and found the field of AMR fascinating. If you wish to hear more about AMR research in the University of Edinburgh, follow the AMR Forum podcast. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to it and to follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook at Biopod Edinburgh. Otherwise, enjoy your day and see you next time. Thank you.